0: Well, welcome everybody. If you're with us for the first time, we are in a series called The God Who Sees. And we're busy journeying through the book of Exodus. Today is going to be the third installment of that series. And I trust and pray that you'll be blessed as we hang out together today and spend a bit of time in God's Word. So today we're going to be looking at uh, the 10 plagues. And that narrative and that story comes out of chapters 5 through to 11 in the book of Exodus. It really is one of the Bible's most dramatic scenes and uh, as you read it and as it plays out you you get the feel of this historical account uh, being a showdown between God and the Egyptian pharaoh. God wanting his people to be let go after being in slavery for about 400 years and pharaoh just absolutely resilient and hard-hearted and being as stubborn as possible and going, I will not let them go. And as this showdown continues and as the standoff continues, God uh, uh, inflicts upon the Israelite people and Pharaoh himself one plague after the next, each one becoming more and more severe, eventually ending in the death of all the firstborn sons of Egypt. Now, along with this being uh, quite an intense and pretty dramatic portion of the biblical narrative, there are some very interesting questions that are raised as well. Some of those questions are, you know, why did God choose the plagues? Why did he use the plagues that he did? And what were the purpose? What were the purposes for the plagues from God's side? The other question uh, is a little bit more significant and uh, tends to be the one that a lot of people ask. And that's why did, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Why, why did he do that? Is, that? is that just? Is that fair? And how do I reconcile God-hardening Pharaoh's heart with the justice and the fairness of God? And then the next question, which isn't inherent, or it doesn't come from the actual scriptures itself or from the story itself, but it's a question I think we need to ask ourselves every single time we read God's Word. Uh, and that's, what does this mean for me now? Because although God's Word was written thousands of years ago, God's Word says that His Word is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, which means that it is relevant and applicable for us today. We need to ask the question, what does the story of the 10 plagues teach us about God, about ourselves? And what does that mean for us now, today? So that's what we're going to be looking at. That's how this message is going to be broken up today. And I trust, like I said, that you'll be blessed. So the first question is, why does God choose the plagues that He did? What, what was their purpose? The first reason First reason God chooses the plagues or the first purpose of the plagues we find in Exodus chapter 9 verse 16. Speaking about the plagues, speaking about his need to redeem his people, God says, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, the plagues are supposed to and were meant to and should still, when we read about them, cause us to go, wow, as we see something of, the work of God and the power of God at work to redeem his people. You see, above all, the primary reason for the plagues and for God doing what he did and for showing his power the way that He did was to bring glory to his name and to exalt his name in all the earth. That's the main reason God uses the plagues is to show his supreme power. Secondly, God uses the plagues uh, for a different reason, we read about that in Exodus chapter seven, verse five. It says, "The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I stretched out my hand against Egypt and I bring out the people of Israel from among them." God uses the plagues to reveal to the Egyptian people just how great He is and how unique God is, and to remind His people of that truth as well. God uses the plagues to reveal to the Egyptians that He is the one true God, that there is none beside Him and none above Him, that He is above and beyond all. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods. He does this to show this to the Egyptians and also to remind His people that that is who He is. You see, we need to remember the context here. God's people have been enslaved for uh, hundreds of years And they've been exposed to the Egyptians and the Egyptian um, forms of worship and practice. And maybe very possibly somewhere along the line, God's people had picked up um, some bad habits or some bad religious practices and were um, abandoning uh, um, abandoning their hope in God and maybe even forgetting what God was like and possibly even being incredibly unfaithful to God. So God uses the plagues to show His glory To reveal himself to the Egyptians as the one true God and to remind his people of just how great he is. The third reason God uses the plagues is revealed to us in the book of Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 6. It says in chapter 3 of Exodus, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. Then in chapter six, it says, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. See, God uses the plagues as a way of forcefully redeeming his people and reminding him that he is a God who remembers his promise And is faithful to his promise and his promises that he made to his people. He is still a God who cares. A God who hears his people and their cries. And he is still very much the God who sees. And so he comes in as the deliverer. As the redeemer. And the one who uses his power to forcefully remove his people from a situation they couldn't remove themselves from by themselves. So God uses the plagues to redeem his people. And then lastly... The fourth reason for God using the plagues, we really read about this in Genesis chapter 15. And obviously there's evidence of this reason for God using the plagues in Exodus itself. It's very self-explanatory. But in Genesis chapter 15, verse 14, it says it very clearly. The Lord says, I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, speaking about his people. And afterward, they will come out with great Possessions And John spoke about this last week. He spoke about how God's people plundered the Egyptians as they left. But what this speaks to is God using the plagues to judge Egypt, to judge the Egyptians and to judge Pharaoh himself. The plagues were an indictment on the, on the Egyptian people and a judgment on them for their cruel treatment of the Israelite people. But not only was this a judgment on the Egyptians and Pharaoh, but upon the religious beliefs and the gods and goddesses that the Egyptians worshipped. There's a a table that that should come up on your screen now. And I don't really have time to go through all of this and to unpack all of it. But you'll see that each of the plagues that God brings upon the people of Egypt. And you're more than welcome to pause uh, the sermon and pause the video and just take note of that. But each of the plagues correlates with an Egyptian god or goddess and challenges those gods or goddesses in the sphere in which they were believed to have influence or control. You know, we have got the Nile that's turned to blood and there's a god or goddesses that the Egyptians believed were gods or goddesses of the Nile. And so it goes on with the frogs and the gnats and the flies. And so God is essentially setting himself up against the gods of Egypt and competing with them and showing how he completely blows them out of the water and destroys them as he sets himself up as a supreme God. Judgment upon the Egyptians, judgment upon the gods and the goddesses and the religious beliefs of the Egyptians at that time. Evidence of that is seen in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, where God is speaking about the 10th plague. He says, on that same night... I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Then later on in Exodus chapter 15, reflecting on the Exodus as a whole, Moses stated, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? So God reveals his glory. God makes his name known through the plagues. He reveals his uniqueness to the Egyptian people and to God's people and sets himself up as the one true God. He reminds his people of his faithfulness and his promises that he's made to them and proves himself to be trustworthy and faithful and able to redeem. And he judges the Egyptians and their gods to show that he's mighty and above all. Those are the reasons why God uses the plagues and he uses the plagues that he did. Our the second question it's a little bit more difficult because it raises some very serious and significant theological questions. And often we end up with a question underneath the question. You know, the question that we ask is, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? But the subconscious question and the question under that is, is God fair? Is God just and fair and right? And if so, how does this make sense? And we tend to personalize it as well. We go, well, if Pharaoh didn't stand a chance And if God hardened his heart and there's nothing he can do about it, is it true possibly maybe that God can do that to me as well? Is there any hope or does God just smite one and bless the other sort of willy-nilly style, haphazardly? This question of is God fair is a really important one. And as you read this uh, historical account of the plagues from chapters 5 to 11, you really cannot get away from this question. And in fact, I think Moses, who, who wrote Exodus as a historical account of what happened, deliberately placed this in to each account of each plague so that we couldn't get away from it. Now, just to say, to answer this question properly and thoroughly requires at least a whole sermon if not a whole sermon series and really falls under the genre of apologetics when it comes to our faith and defending our faith. Um, but today, I just don't have enough time to engage uh, in this question as deeply as I'd like to. But if you would like to engage a little bit more, Brad Mann preached a really good message entitled Our Free Will, Man's Free Will, and the Sovereignty of God. Uh, he preached that some time back, and you can find that on our church's YouTube page. Uh, if you go and look for that sermon, you'll find that, and he deals with that a little bit more in depth and a little bit more thoroughly. Today, though, what I'm going to focus on, because uh, I feel that I need to, is giving just a very short Uh, answer to why it is that God wasn't unfair and unjust in hardening Pharaoh's heart the way that he did in order to have all the plagues pay themselves out the way they did so that God's people would eventually be let go. So the first thing we need to remember is again context, right? We end up sometimes coming at this thinking that Pharaoh was a good guy, That somehow he was this old man, like grandfatherly type guy who cared for his family, who cared for his people, who cared for the people in his land, who cared for the foreigner, and really wanted the best for people. But nothing could be further from the truth. Pharaoh was not an innocent man. In fact, he's probably one of the worst, if not the worst person we've met in the Bible so far. He was a brutal dictator overseeing the oppression and and slavery of um, the people of Israel. He 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 had, he had, he had inherited this, this legacy where they oppressed God's people and he continued with that legacy. It's also very likely and probable that this was the Pharaoh who was the one who uh, was responsible for ordering the murder of all of the firstborn sons of the Israelites that we read about back in Exodus chapter 1 verse 16. You know, Pharaoh was a wicked man. It's the reason why God said to Moses what he did in chapter 3, verse 19. He says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. God knows that Pharaoh is wicked. He knows his heart is already hard. He's proud and arrogant as a ruler. Indeed, according to Egyptian uh, religious beliefs, He he probably was viewed as a god and believed that he was a god, and so the pride would just ooze from him. And to think that he would need to submit himself to another god and let people go who were serving his purposes and his nation and their needs was unthinkable. Pharaoh really was an evil and wicked man, and that needs to be established. This preconceived idea that God hardened the heart of a soft, gentle, godly man is absolute nonsense. Pharaoh was wicked. The second thing we need to realize is that sometimes we're told that Pharaoh was responsible for the hardening of his own heart. Then there are times when it seems a little bit ambiguous and we're not too sure who's doing the hardening, whether it's Pharaoh or God. And then there are times where it's absolutely specifically clear that God is the one doing the hardening. If you look at uh, the list of the plagues that should be up on your screen now as well. We'll see with the with the plague of blood, it says Pharaoh's heart became hard. That, that again is ambiguous. We don't know who's doing the hardening there. With the frogs, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Very specifically Pharaoh. With the gnats, Pharaoh's heart was hard. Again, ambiguous. With the flies, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Specifically Pharaoh there. With the livestock that died, Pharaoh's heart was hard. Again, ambiguous. The boils, it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. With hail, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. With the locusts, it says God announces that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. With the plague of darkness, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And with the death of the firstborn, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, unfortunately, in some Bible translations, there is a bit of a translation issue which complicates things a little bit when trying to understand what's going on here. What's happened is the Hebrew word for became hard, which is pronounced chazak, is is not passive, right? Nor does it indicate who is doing the work or initiating the action. So the word became hard is not passive. Passive, but it also is ambiguous. It's called. And you get your English buff hat on you. Yeah? It's called a state of verb, meaning that when it's used, it's not clear as to who's doing the hardening, whether it's Pharaoh or whether it's God. And if you're reading the NRV, like I said, it 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 it, it puts it as an ambiguous thing, and I think that's the author's intent. But what's happened is in some modern translations, they've regrettably rendered that verb was hardened instead of became hard. So what they've done is they've taken a passive verb and what they've done is they've taken a stative verb and they've turned it into a passive one. So when you read um, that account from chapter seven onwards, you walk away thinking that God was hardening Pharaoh's heart from the outset which isn't true at all. It's not what the text says. What is true is that in the first five plagues, God sends on Egypt. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is according to himself. It's his own fault. It's what he does to himself. And we know this because it very specifically says that Pharaoh is the one doing the hardening. And then later on, the pattern changes. The last five plagues, it very specifically says God is the one doing the hardening, whereas before it was Pharaoh. In other words, although God already knows what Pharaoh is going to do, he still gives him at least five opportunities to repent, to humble himself and to come and to beg for mercy. But he doesn't do that. Each time Pharaoh is confronted with the glory of God, he resists. Each time plagues get worse, he resists and he hardens his heart. The more of God's glory and power is revealed and the more his magicians cannot keep up with what God is doing. So Pharaoh hardens his heart more and more. And his heart gets harder and harder until eventually the hardening of Pharaoh's heart by God becomes a judicial hardening. In other words, it's a hardening that God puts on him or brings into his life as a punishment and as a judgment upon him and his people due to the stubbornness of their hearts initially. Now the same heart that Pharaoh had is evident in people who will one day be in hell. In Luke chapter thirteen twenty-eight, speaking about hell, Jesus says, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. Now how does it relate to what we're speaking about here in Exodus and Pharaoh's hard heart? Well, one day when Jesus comes back again, it says he's going to take, take his people, the sheep, and those who don't know him, the goats, and he's going to separate them, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And he's going to say to his people, come inherit eternity. And he's going to say to those on his left, those who are going to hell, get away from me, I never knew you. And on that day, people, when they go to hell, there's going to be a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the weeping and gnashing of teeth will continue for eternity. They're going to be people who are weeping in hell because they thought that they had a relationship with God. They thought they believed in the right God. But they found out that their life was lived for themselves. And whatever it is that they did to not inherit the promise has landed them up in hell. And they're going to be grieved and they're going to weep. But then there are going to be people in hell who are gnashing their teeth. And the gnashing of teeth is really this indication of extreme rage and anger and frustration and just bitterness, animosity and gall. And some people are going to be like that in hell for eternity. But it's not as a result of them being chucked into hell that they're like that. That's just a continuation of the type of life they lived on earth before they saw Jesus and faced judgment. You see, there are people whose hearts are so hard towards God, even now on earth, that the more of God's glory that is revealed to them, the harder they get. And one day when they see Jesus in all his glory and he brings judgment upon them, they will bow their knee and they will confess with their tongue that he is Lord. But that is going to irk them more than anything else. And despite the fact that they see God in his glory, they're still going to become angry and they spend eternity angry with God. And so those people, because of the lives they lived and the stubbornness of their hearts and the hardness of their hearts, bring upon themselves the judgment that they receive, the eternity in hell, where they will continuously be angry and hate God. And the same was true for Pharaoh. The same heart is true in Pharaoh. The same heart is evident in him. And in the end, the same truth is true for these people, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, as it is for those people who one day spend eternity in hell. They brought the judgments upon themselves. With 400 years of slavery and mass murder. You know, Romans 6 teaches us that the wages of sin is death. And Pharaoh and Egypt had horribly sinned against God and his people. It would have really been a just punishment for God to have wiped out the Egyptians completely, like he did with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, like he did in the days of Noah. But the plagues, as terrible as they are, don't reflect. Don't reveal the unjustness or unfairness of God. They actually reveal his justice and his mercy and his grace. In bringing the 10 plagues, he doesn't wipe them out completely or destroy Egypt completely, which would have been a perfectly just judgment. Instead, he spares the Egyptian people. He takes out Pharaoh takes out some of Pharaoh's army, but he leaves the Egyptian people and that is grace. So God was not unjust or unfair in hardening Pharaoh's heart. He had his opportunity because he rebelled and because he was stubborn, God issues this judicial hardening, which is to bring about the rest of the plagues to show his glory and to free his people. And this leaves us with the last question for today. And I believe it's the most significant question for us to ask. What does this all mean for us? Right now, with a couple of things that we learn, we learn stuff about God from the account of the Exodus, and we learn stuff about ourselves. What we learn about God in the account of the Exodus is about his character and his work. The account of the Exodus reveals to us that God is sovereign, he was sovereign then, and he is sovereign now, and he cares about his glory. God doesn't change, nor do his promises, nor do his plans, nor do his purposes. And what we learn, what we can apply to our lives now is the truth that as God's people, there is nothing that is beyond God's ability to redeem or to help us to overcome or to move out of the way so that we can serve Him and that we can bring Him glory. What God calls you to and what God has promised to bring you, He will fulfill and He will enable you to do. Right now, that should be able to bring you and should instill in you and allow to wash over you a deep, Peace, knowing that God can be trusted. He is sovereign and there is nothing outside of his control. We learn about God from the account of the Exodus that he's a jealous God. because God never changes, he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, we know that he's a jealous God now. He's a God who's jealous for his name, jealous for his glory, and jealous for his people. And when we think about that, we think about jealousy as being a very negative thing. It doesn't have a very positive connotation. But when God is jealous, he's jealous out of his purity and his righteousness and his perfection. He's not jealous like we get jealous out of our sinfulness, out of our sinful nature, and out of, you know, pride and arrogance and envy. God is jealous in a perfect way. He's jealous for his glory, jealous for his name, and jealous for his people. The next thing we learn about God is that he is a wrathful God. When we look at the account of the plagues, we look at that recording of what happened to the Egyptians. We know that God is a God who will not tolerate wickedness and evil, no matter who it is, no matter what it is in all of creation. He will not tolerate rebellion against him forever. God will punish the wicked and God will bring death like he did against the Egyptians and many other people who set themselves up against him in the scriptures. You know oftentimes we find ourselves horrified at the severity with which God deals with the sinner. Think about Ananias and Sapphira who lodged the Holy Spirit and instantly they were taken out. You think about Sodom and Gomorrah. You think about the different ways God has judged different people and different people groups. And it just seems so intense. But what we need to realize is that the seriousness with which God deals with our sin is a measure of His holiness. God deals with sin so seriously because He is such a holy God. And that is true for us even now. It is true of our God today. He's a God who... Well, God's word says he's storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And on the day of judgment, for those who are not in Christ, that wrath is going to be poured out upon them. And they're going to receive the just penalty for their sins, which will be eternity in hell. And for some of us, we sort of kick back at that. We have this visceral reaction where we just don't like the idea of God being wrathful and vengeful. And bringing death and bringing judgment. But we must realize that when we think about God as being unjust or unfair or harsh in circumstances like that, where he judges people for their sin, when we think about him being, you know, hard and and unjust for doing that, it just reveals our failure as humans to grasp the magnitude of his holiness, righteousness and glory, and how depraved we really are as sinners and how God abhors the sin that we inherited from Adam and Eve. But the good thing that we also learn, that we see in the story of Exodus, and that is true for us now today, is that our God is still a God who saves. He is still a God who hears, he's still a God who sees, a God who cares. God's judgment upon the Egyptians was a mean of, means of delivering his people out of slavery and out of terrible bondage. But today there are still millions upon millions of people who are still in bondage, not to physical bondage in Egypt, but to bondage to sin and the sinful nature. People who are in spiritual slavery, people who are entangled with sin and who are really spiritually dead. What this means for us today when we look at the story of God redeeming his people from Egypt, the fact that they're in slavery mirrors the idea and mirrors the truth that there are many people in slavery today who God wants to have as his people. Sons and daughters that he wants to call out of this prison and this fortress of darkness that is sin and slavery to sin. Sin and spiritual death really are the worst of all plagues and the worst of all prisons. And today people can try as they might, like God's people probably did back in the day, to release themselves from slavery and free themselves from bondage, but they could not, and we cannot break ourselves free. So like back then, thousands of years ago, when God redeemed His people, they needed Him. And today there are many people who need a new exodus there are many people who need a new Moses to lead them out of slavery. And we know that that person is none other than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, King Jesus himself. And you know, what blows my mind is that because of God's great love for us, despite what we've done, you know, God's word says that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Because of his great love for us, God's judgment was poured out, not only on the Egyptians, but upon his own son on the cross, so that all men might be saved. God's severity was extended not only to the Egyptians, but also to his own son for our sakes that we can know him. You know, when God said this in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19 to Moses, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. What he was making very clear was that no one was going to let his people go. And no one did let his people go. It was God who redeemed. God rescued. God's mighty hand and his mighty hand alone redeemed and saved and rescued his people. No one let God's people go. The glory went to him. It continues to go to him and will forever go to him for his ability to redeem And save. And the same is true for our salvation and our redemption today. We are saved by grace through faith, so that no one can boast, Paul says. Salvation is not dependent upon us. Salvation doesn't come through wise and persuasive words. Salvation comes through the power of God. It doesn't come through a person walking down an aisle and putting up their hand and praying the sinner's prayer and asking Jesus to come into their heart. Salvation is a matter of God in His power through the power of the Spirit, raising the spiritually dead person and making them spiritually alive. It's His mighty power to save, not ours. Like Moses, Christians today, we're, we're simply vessels to be used by God, who He works through to deliver souls from bondage by the power of His Spirit. That's what we learn about our God and that's what it means for us today. But we also learn some stuff about ourselves. And I'm going to end off our message today with these truths. You know, when you read the account of the 10 plagues and you read about the king of Egypt or Pharaoh, I don't know if you've noticed, but Moses never actually names the specific Pharaoh. And I think he does that on purpose. He does it on purpose because to name the Pharaoh would then make it specific and personal where he wants it to be general. In other words, he doesn't want us to attach a name to Pharaoh because Pharaoh in the story represents something else and something bigger. He wants us to see that although we automatically, or automatically relate to the Israelites in the story, and I tend to do that when I read that story and I read a biblical story where there's a baddie and a goodie, I tend to always put myself in the shoes of the goodie right? I'm never the people who were drowned in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the Noah story. I'm never Saul. I'm never Balaam on the donkey. You know, I'm never the Pharisees. I'm always the good guy. But Moses wants us to see that Pharaoh is not just Pharaoh as a person in the story, but he's a symbol. He's a pattern and he's a model for human rebellion. And there's a warning to us in this. He wants us to see that there's a plot twist, if you will, and that we are not only always Egypt, I mean, uh, uh, the Israelites, but we can sometimes also be Pharaoh. You see, Pharaoh embodies the deadly and tragic turn that the human heart takes when we reject God and his ways. When we place our own well-being and value systems above the values and the well-being of God and his and, 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 and His desire for us. Pharaoh is what happens when we become what we want to become apart from God's desire for us. Pharaoh is what happens and it's who we become, it's who society becomes when we redefine good and evil apart from God's word and his wisdom. Pharaoh is the horrific situation that comes about when we reject God and it's the Bible's accurate diagnosis of the human condition. You know, when human evil goes unchecked, And bad things, bad things begin to happen. And even quote unquote good people do some horrific things. Moses is showing us that Pharaoh was responsible for him, for for the evil in his heart himself. And at some point after plague number five, he crosses this point of no return. Not because God couldn't redeem him and God wouldn't have forgiven him or God wouldn't have redeemed him. But because he himself, because of the hardening of his heart toward God, had taken himself to a point where it was no longer possible for him to respond in humility and repentance. The heart of the human, the heart of Pharaoh and our hearts will always do what God designed them to do. You know, God has designed the heart to respond to him and to soften as he reveals himself to us and we choose to step into that truth and allow God to rule and reign in our hearts. But God's designed the heart also to begin to get harder and more calloused the more we reject him and the more often we push him away. And over and over again, we read one plague after the next. Pharaoh actually begs Moses to pray to God. He says, I, I, I give in, I give up, I'll let you go. Just ask God to relent. Ask him to stop. And, and and Moses says, surely today, right now, when I go from your presence, I will pray and ask God to stop um, his infliction upon the Israelite, uh, uh, upon the Egyptian people with these plagues. And he prays that and God relents. And then, heart, and then Pharaoh hardens his heart again. You know, Pharaoh over and over again goes back on his word and he abuses the grace of God. And and that can really be like us sometimes where, you know, nothing improves prayer life faster than big trouble. And we need to watch out that this isn't true of us as well. You know, we see Pharaoh doing this, but we also need to realize that we can be Pharaoh. And we can pray and ask God earnestly in times of real need to help us and to give us breakthrough and to relent and to heal us. And as soon as he does that, we forget what he's done. And we go back on our word and we walk away from God and we harden our hearts. You know, the point of the account of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is not to teach us that God is the engineer of evil. To help us try and work through that. The whole point of the story of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a warning to us, to you and to me, to not be like Pharaoh. God will always graciously offer us chances to turn back. But sometimes a person can cement themselves in an ungodly and unrighteous, destructive path in such a way that they reach a point of no return. Hebrews 6 4 6 says this It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. And it goes on in Hebrews 10 to say, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Church, if a person persists in their sins, We've learned from the account of the Exodus that God will and does and can as a form of punishment hand us over to our own evil and to our own heart's desires. Psalm 81, 10 to 12 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. But my people would not listen to me and Israel would not obey me. So I gave them up to their stubborn heart to follow their own devices. And in case you thought that just happened in the Old Testament, Romans 1, 28 to 29 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. You know, we think that God's judgment looks a specific way and takes a specific form. But sometimes one of the harshest Harshest judgments God can pass down on the person is to allow them to pursue their own wicked, evil desires and the hardening of their hearts. God almost says, you know, okay, you want to do that? Fine, do that. And destruction upon destruction and heartache upon heartache and brokenness upon brokenness is experienced by that person, those people, because they pursued their own ways. God is not going to force himself upon you. He's not going to force himself into your life. He reveals his glory. And you have the opportunity to say, yes, Lord, that's what I desire. You and nothing else. Come soften my heart. Have your way in me. Or you can choose to say, no, God, like Pharaoh did. I'm too proud. I'm too arrogant. I'm too set in my ways. And experience a hardening of your heart to the point where possibly it's not it's not possible for you to return or to accept that invitation again. But here's the good news. And I promise I'm going to end with this today. The reality is if you're afraid of that happening to you, if the idea of that freaks you out or shakes you up a little bit, if you're concerned, oh my word, am I I fair? Am I hardening my heart? The chances are if that's a reality for you, the good news is you're not fairer. The fact that you're asking the sobering question means that your heart is soft towards the Lord. And I want to encourage you, brother or sister, or someone maybe doesn't even know the Lord, cultivate that, pursue that, Allow the Lord to soften your heart. Pray like David did and say, Lord, if there's any offensive way in me, reveal it to me so I can surrender that to you. I want to walk in obedience to you with a soft heart. You know, God wants you to do the right thing right now. And Exodus really is a picture of our spiritual journey out of the world of bondage to sin and slavery to the sinful nature and into freedom and forgiveness and and life and full inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. God frees us so that we may serve Him. And that's really the point of our salvation, to have soft hearts, to love God and to love others. God's love in judgment and His love in redemption is still the same today as it was then in the Exodus account. He loves you so much. He loves you so much that He has provided a way for you to enter into relationship with Him and get out of the bondage of slavery to sin. Will you take that opportunity today and serve him? Will you take his invite? Or will you stay in Egypt and be a slave? In Hebrews 3:15, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Lord, we pray that people who've heard this today would come to a saving knowledge of you. I thank you for the things we've learned about you. I thank you that you're a God who hears, you're a God who cares. You're a God who saves because you are the God who sees. And I pray for your people, Lord, who are walking a fine line between backsliding and hardening their hearts. Soften their hearts, reveal yourself to them and may they turn in repentance to you today for the glory of your name. May we respond to you, Lord, with humility and tender hearts. Soften us more and more for the glory of your name, King Jesus. And may many people, because of your people here at Connect and all over the world, come to know you because of the lives we live and the power of God that they see evident in our lives. For the glory of your name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, bless you. Have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you for bearing with me. I know this was a bit of a longer message, but I felt this is what the Lord wanted me to share with us today and with you today. If you want to get a hold of us please the contact numbers for our for our church officer are on the screen below. If you want to email me please email me at roland at za. I'd love to hear from you but until next time have a wonderful day. Bye.